0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Get your Bibles open. Book of Revelation. Here we go. Book of Revelation. Bibles open. Need your noses in the book. Need your noses in the book. Uh, I heard a story uh, a few weeks ago about an evangelist who was working on the campus of a British university, and as part of his evangelistic efforts, he was passing out New Testaments with the condition that those who received these would actually read them. And uh, he was passing these out, and lo and behold, two, three months later, one of the the, uh, students who had received a copy of the New Testament came back to him. And the evangelist saw him and said, so, what'd you think? And the student who had no familiarity whatsoever with the Bible said, well, it was all right. A bit repetitious at the front end. They seemed to tell the same story four times. But I really liked that bit of science fiction at the end. Yes, in a way, Revelation is a strange book. It's a strange book. It's full of angels and demons and lions and lambs and horses and dragons and ghoulies and ghosties and long-leggedy beasties and things that go bump in the night. (laughs) Now, most of us have had our understanding of the book of Revelation shaped by books other than Revelation. That's the first thing we've got to own up to. Most of us have had our understanding of this book shaped by books other than this book. I know who they are. I'm not naming them. I'm not naming them. So, the first thing we need to do, our first order of business, is to access that part of your hard drive that purports to contain memory files on the book of Revelation and uh, just delete those. Delete them. We start over. We start with a clean slate today. Uh, now, this series, I will, um, I will own the fact that this is going to feel like drinking from a fire hydrant. It will feel that way. I have no intention whatsoever trying to entertain you. None. I once taught through the book of Revelation in a previous church on a Thursday night class. The first couple of weeks, there were about 200 people who came. By the last two weeks, we had about 70 coming, okay? It's going to take some work. It's going to take some endurance, but as we'll see, there is great reward for those who stay the course, great reward for those who stay the course. I need to teach this book. I need you to understand this book. So I will not be pulling out phrases here and there and pontificating devotionally on those to make you feel good. That's not how I'm handling this. I need you to understand the book because I want this book to become a life partner with you for the remainder of your days. Okay? Here we go. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place... First thing to notice here, this book is called Revelation, not Revelations. It's a common error in Christian circles. It's your next dinner party when one of your fellow diners calls it Revelations. You can correct them and out yourself as every bit the pretentious fop that I am. <laughs> it does matter because what follows are not a series of revelations, what follows is the revelation. The revelation. That's what follows. Specifically, the revelation from Jesus Christ to us. So it matters that we speak rightly and accurately about the final book of the Bible, Revelation not revelations. Now, at street level, when someone talks about the apocalypse, it usually conjures up doomsday mental graphics, crazy sci-fi computer-generated, the sky is falling kind of stuff, right? Out on the street, you, you mention the word apocalypse to somebody, that's usually what comes to mind. A you 500-foot know, wave is about to crash into New York City. The San Andreas Fault is about to open up and swallow San Francisco whole. Green Bay Packers are about to suffer a sub-500 season. It's that kind of stuff. Truly apocalyptic. The word apocalypse simply means to reveal, to disclose, revelation. And as we'll see, not all of this book communicates doomsday scenarios. Our use of apocalypse on the street today, is a bit over-sensationalized. Now, apocalypse, the term apocalypse, came to be identified as an entire literary genre. Music has genres. Rock, country, hip-hop, classical. Literature also has genres. In the Bible, some of those are narrative, epistle, letters, prophetic, apocalyptic, apocalyptic. And apocalyptic literature is characterized by things like angels and demons, natural catastrophes, wars, political and social conflicts, eschatology. There's one for the vocabulary bank. Eschatology simply means last things, last things. Theodicy, theodicy, that is how can an all-powerful and all-loving God permit evil and suffering to exist? Apocalypse takes up that kind of material, and also symbolism. Apocalyptic literature is very, very symbolic, which is one reason it's difficult to interpret. Now, that's all very interesting, but one thing I want you to understand very well is the general theological role apocalyptic literature has, and that is to give us a transcendent perspective on this world. Okay. A transcendent perspective on this world. Revelation, listen, Revelation is not a riddle that needs to be decoded. It's not a riddle that needs to be coded. It's Christian scripture meant to decode our reality. So when we read and understand Revelation, the here and now will look much different than it does currently. Revelation gives us a view of our world from the divine, transcendent perspective. That's the goal of the book. Most people are familiar with Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. Right? You know, the story goes, three spirits come to visit Ebenezer Scrooge, right? And they take him into various parts of his life to, to point out things he had not seen before. It gets him to see his life and his world from a perspective he didn't have before. That's what Revelation does. Okay. Our visiting spirits come to show us our life and our world from a perspective we don't currently have. Notice in the text how we got the book of Revelation. There's a chain of events, a chain of revelation. Starts with God. It goes to Jesus, then to the angel, then to John, then to the churches, Revelation was in the mind of God before pen was put to paper. So when Revelation gets difficult to understand, let's not scoff. Let's not get lazy and check out. Let's not fall asleep at the wheel. The words in front of us came from our creator, the eternal God. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Numbers are significant in the book of Revelation. Uh, This verse is an example of that because it is the first of seven proclamations of blessing. Seven. There are seven proclamations of blessing in the book of Revelation. This is the first. Reading this book aloud and doing what it, Calls us to changes things for you and me. A blessing awaits those who listen and keep what is written in it. Notice we're told that in addition to being of the apocalyptic genre, Revelation is also of the prophetic genre. In fact, Revelation is a unique combination of three different types of genre, all wrapped together. Epistle is the other, and we'll see that momentarily. Prophecy in general is a genre that communicates the plan of God and his desires for his people. Because that's the nature of prophecy, it tends to be bold and culturally unpalatable. It is a call to action. By its very nature, Revelation, prophetic material in general, feels confrontational. That's its point. That's the point. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Now, verse four tells us the entire book of Revelation is also a letter. That's important. The entire book is a letter. The entire book. Sometimes chapters two and three are referred to as the seven letters to the seven churches. It's a bit misleading. They might be seven messages to the seven churches. But to say that those are just letters makes us isolate them, tend to isolate them from the rest of the book. Chapter 1 all the way to 22 is a letter. The whole thing is a letter. Since it's a letter written to specific churches in the first century, the symbols used in Revelation would have made sense to those first century Christians. So we're not going to go the way of some of the modern writers who have looked at that symbolism and drawn out modern-day parallels to those symbols, i.e. the plague of locusts is a fleet of helicopters. Revelation is an intelligible book to Christians living in the first century. It's going to be more difficult for us to discern because we're separated by 2,000 years of language, culture, and experience. But Revelation would not have been a foreign language to the Christians living in these seven churches in the province of Asia. John greets them, saying, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. This title is used various ways five different times throughout the book. And Revelation is the only book of the Bible where this title for God appears, And it introduces, the title itself introduces us to one of the themes of Revelation, and that is God's sovereign control over the entire course of human history, past, present, and future. Human history is God's story, He's the author, we're the characters. Grace and peace to you from Him who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before His throne, and from Jesus Christ. Now, who are or what are these seven spirits? Well, when read in context, what does it look like? The Holy Spirit is a typical Trinitarian greeting we're used to seeing in all the New Testament letters. Why mention the Holy Spirit as seven spirits? Well, keep in mind John's Jewish background, as well as the Jewish background of many of those in these seven churches who received this letter, seven, yes, by this time is a number of completeness. It took a seventh day for the establishment of creation to be complete because God built the pronouncement of rest into what he had made. Seven, yes, this is the way it's supposed to be. The seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit manifested in completeness. But why talk about the spirit that way? I don't know. I don't know. One possibility that makes sense of the book overall is that it was done to communicate to these seven churches that the Holy Spirit is present and active in each one of them individually. If this is indeed the case, the Holy Spirit can be thought of as a being who is not distant, but closely present and active in that church, in any local church. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Notice the threefold title given to Jesus. Faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. As faithful witness, Jesus bore faithful witness to God even at the cost of his life. This word witness or the word testimony is one of John's favorite ways of talking about Christians in the book. Christians are witnesses to Jesus, even if that means death. Death at the hands of opposition or natural catastrophes or whatever. In fact, that is how Revelation portrays victory. One of the keys to victory in the Christian life is bearing witness to Christ even when doing so puts you in physical danger. The goal of the Christian life isn't to preserve your life, but to use it up in service of the Lord day by day. as firstborn from the dead he is the resurrected Christ and is the pledge and promise of our resurrection firstborn he's the first installment of things to come as a ruler of the kings of the earth all earthly authorities are under his dominion during the late 1st century when john wrote this book rome was extremely powerful and we'll talk often about rome and the christian's relationship to government throughout this book rome was very powerful Uh, When Rome conquered a land, though, it did not replace the local elites with direct rule. When Rome invaded a new land and conquered a land, it did not replace the leaders of that land with already assimilated Romans. You know what it did? It took those local leaders and it assimilated them to the Roman way of life. It didn't replace leaders, it changed them indoctrinated them, assimilated them. That's why Rome would go around saying they are the ruler of the kings of the earth. What's Jesus saying? What are we being told about Jesus? He's the ultimate ruler. Earthly rulers are subservient to the dominion of Christ. Jesus co-ops local leaders Remember one of the purposes of this book? To see our world from a heavenly perspective. The chaos unfolding around us is under the dominion of Christ. Believing Jesus has dominion over the chaos unfolding around us and living in such a way that reflects that belief is the way you win. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. It's interesting to me that after pondering the threefold description of Jesus and how uh, these three titles serve it as an encouragement to Christians, John pauses to worship. That's what he's doing. He ponders the threefold office of Christ, pauses and says, (laughs) to him, be glory. Even while exiled on a remote island, even while his fellow Christians face a difficult road ahead, because of um, those around them, John is still able to worship. Verse 7, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. In verse 7, John combines two Old Testament passages, Gen 7.13 and Zechariah 12.10, to apply it to and describe the second coming of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, Jesus uses these same two Old Testament verses to describe his own coming, his second coming. So it's likely that John is borrowing from Jesus' own words found in Matthew 24. The Greek word for mourn, kopto, literally means to beat one's chest in sorrow. It's used only twice in this book. One is here. The other is in chapter 18, verse 9. Just listen to this verse. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Now, in that context, mourning is clearly not repentance, in chapter 18, verse 9, the sorrow is expressed over the loss of their source of sensuous and immoral pleasure. So part of the thrust of this verse is that at the imminent return of Christ, unbelievers will mourn over the judgment to come. They'll wail because they know it's too late. But John seems to use this idea of mourning in a twofold manner because he quotes Zechariah 12:10, which in its original context, is a vision that God gives to Zechariah where he sees forgiveness granted to people who weep over the one they have slain. So there seems to be a twofold meaning. What does it mean that people are going to mourn and wail at the return of Christ? There are going to be people who mourn and wail because of repentance, and there's going to be people who wail and mourn because they've lost their earthly pleasure and wealth. Every eye will see him. John says, every eye will see him. When Christ returns, every human being will see him. Christ's return, this is remarkable. Christ's return is not something you'll have to hear about on the news. We reflected on 9-11 on Friday. And um, as, as powerful an event as that was, most of us had to learn about it through a medium. I was on my way out the door to get to my epidemiology class in college, of all things. When I'd flipped on the, the news to see what was going on, and there it was. That's the way it is with most attention getting events in our world. You have to find out about it through a medium, a screen of some sort. Think about the power and glory of the return of Christ that will not need such medium. When Christ returns, no one will have to access the news in order to know what's happening. Think about the power and glory of the return of Christ. Every eye will see him. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. On the one hand, who is and who was and who is to come is a repetition of verse 4, God's sovereign control over the entire course of human history, past, present, future. Human history is God's story. He's the author, we're the characters. But on the other hand, we have God's declaration of I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters. Of the alphabet, Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. In other words, God is the origin of all things and God is the reason for which all things are made. Say it again. God is the origin of all things and he's the reason all things are made. This is the concept of God's glory which we looked at this past summer. Cosmic reality is God-centered. The universe, all existence... Is about God. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is the disciple of Jesus, writer of John's gospel, writer of the epistles of John. He's on the island of Patmos. Specifically because of the word of God and the testimony that he bore about Jesus, Patmos was an island about 6 by 10 miles, mountainous island off the coast of Turkey. In the latter part of the first century, it had become an exile colony. It's not difficult to think about the relationship between islands and the usage of them as detention centers. John is an exile, a prisoner on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is a Christian badge of honor. To be imprisoned or beaten or persecuted or physically diminished because of our witness to Jesus is a good thing. This is, in fact, how Revelation defines victory. Let's not be deceived into thinking we can be charismatic enough to avoid this. Andrew Walker tweeted this past week We can never do better than Jesus Christ. He lived a life of perfect integrity and yet also proclaimed the very disrupting idea of exclusivity. He still wound up an enemy of the state despite his integrity and consistency, and winsomeness did not prevent that from happening. One of the ideas we'll see repeated throughout the book, Revelation, is wrath. You're going to face someone's wrath. You're either going to face God's, or you're going to face the world's. It makes it unmistakably clear: there is no out. There's no out. Verse ten. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, "Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches: to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia." Laodicea, Sunday, John is in the spirit, which means he's about to be a recipient of scripture. He hears a voice that sounded like a trumpet. In other words, it's piercing. You can't miss it. And the Holy Spirit tells John to write on a scroll what he sees. So the revelation John is about to receive is both prophetic, verbal, and apocalyptic, visual. Prophetic, verbal, and apocalyptic, visual. Verse 12, I turn around to see the to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden In So John is going about his lonely life on the, as an exile on the island of Patmos. Out of nowhere, he hears this piercing voice commanding him to write on a scroll all he's about to see. He turns around to look in the direction the voice is coming from, and what he sees will constitute the rest of the book. John has given a series of visions from this moment on. One of the Most frequently repeated phrases is, and I saw, or then I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw, then I saw. The apocalyptic visions that God gives John through the angel are symbolic. And remember, this is a letter written to first century Christians, so the symbolism must have local meaning. That is, the best places to turn in order to understand the symbolism will be the Old Testament scriptures and first century culture itself. Now, what are these seven golden lampstands? Well, this one's easy, because we're told in verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. But why use the imagery for the seven churches? Why use this imagery for the seven churches? Well, we know Moses constructed a seven-branch lampstand for the tabernacle. That was in the holy place, not the most holy place, the holy place. So I think it's very reasonable to conclude. This means that the church, seven, representing each of the seven he's writing to, the church is meant to be the new temple, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. We know this already. The church is meant to be the dwelling place of God. And so through vision, God is emphasizing this fact. Verse 13, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So here we have just a remarkable portrait of Jesus Christ. He's unveiled in all his glory, his splendor, His majesty. First notice, he's walking among the lampstands. He walks among the churches. He walks among us. In chapters 2 and 3, in the messages to the seven churches, Jesus himself articulates those messages, and he says to every one of them, I know your, I know your, I know your, I know your. He walks among us. He walks among us. His attire is the attire of the high priest. If you recall our study in the atonement this past summer, this will make sense. Jesus is our human representative before God. He enters the most holy place, the dwelling place of God, and doesn't offer the blood of a goat or a bull, but himself. Verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Much of the imagery of these verses is pulled from Daniel 7, where the imagery is describing the ancient of days, God the Father. John is describing Jesus in terms used for God himself. The images used in in Daniel to describe God the Father are transferred and applied to Jesus. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. John himself in his gospel says, anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Though this isn't true of American culture, in many places, white hair automatically brings with it honor and dignity. That was certainly true of Jewish culture. So here Jesus is portrayed as aged, but not decrepit. John sees Jesus with all the wisdom of eternity packed into a head of white hair. And his eyes were blazing like fire. As my grandfather aged, I noticed the, note, noticed the color of his eyes begin to fade somewhat. As you age, it, it tends to kind of gloss over a little bit. It's not, the, the, the color's not quite as pure as it was when you're 15 years old. But not Jesus. He may have all the signs of age, but his eyes are sparkling like fire. Blazing fire. Vitality seeing everything. He misses nothing and notices everything. And he walks among us. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. This imagery is used in a handful of other places in the scriptures to convey the idea of purity. Bronze kilned in a fire is purity. And since feet are used to take you places, to transport yourself, the image could mean Jesus' life direction has been, is, and always will be pure. All that he has done and will do is right and just. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. Now, I have not been to Niagara Falls. Uh, my wife has. Uh, and others have described it to me this way, that it, it, it's a sound almost like no other. Now, you can hear, if you're standing next to someone, you can talk. It sounds as though you can't hear them. But the sound reverberates. It almost gets into every crack and crevice. It's inescapable. It's the voice of Jesus. There is nowhere for people to hide to escape the voice of Jesus. In his right hand, he held seven stars. This will be explained a little further on. This is one of the things apocalyptic literature does, by the way. It introduces an image and explains it later. The only modern-day literary genre we have that's like that is mystery. You're reading a mystery. Something comes up. You think, well, I wonder what that's about. You have no idea. You're not told until four, five, six chapters later. Oh, that's what that's about. That's what apocalyptic literature does. In this case, verse 20 explains what the seven stars represent, the seven angels of the seven churches. So what you have, then, is the risen and exalted Christ walking among the seven churches, and the angels of the seven churches are in his right hand, which is the hand of his power and his control. And I'll mention more about the seven angels in a moment. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword, cuts both ways. The mention of Jesus having a sword in his mouth is mentioned six times in the book, and all of them are references to his judgment. His words render the final verdict. When Jesus speaks, his word prevails, his face was shining, it was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Can you look at the sun? Can you stare at it? Later on, we'll read a scene where the angels use their wings to cover their faces to shield themselves from the brilliance and glory of God. The majesty and awesomeness of Christ is too overwhelming to behold. So John is given this vision of Jesus. Isn't it interesting after seeing this glorious and powerful Christ, John didn't rush up to hug him? Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the only place where this sort of thing happens in the scriptures. It happens to the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel. It happens to the disciples. What would you have to see to fall before Jesus as though dead? Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So Jesus has now taken up a title that earlier was referred to God the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus starts all things the way he wants them to start. He ends all things the way he wants them to end, and everything in between is under his control. This is the heavenly perspective. We are being transported outside our 21st century American context to see this world from Jesus' perspective. Verse 18, I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Because Jesus is the resurrected one, he and he alone has the authority over death. There is a pastoral point to be made here. Those who fear death or suffering can be assured that their perseverance in Christ will be rewarded with victory over the grave. Verse 19, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand. And of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now the whole book intermingles things that are and things are to, that are to come. He goes back and forth throughout the whole book. What are we to make of the angels, seven angels? Well, there's one to correspond to each church. Now, there are a few things that we can glean from how the scriptures portray angels. For example, you can say the cherubim of Ezekiel are close to the throne. You can say the seraphim of Isaiah are close to the throne. You can even say that some angels of Daniel have particular relationships to various nations. The angel of this nation, the angel of that nation are sent by God to carry out some sort of commission. We're given enough of a peep to see that there are whole structures of reality beyond what we don't see or have ready access to, but they're there. And eventually around the throne are the cherubim, the elders, the myriads of angels, and then the myriads of saints, almost as if there's a hierarchy. Within this framework, then, I suspect that what we have here is each church with its own angel, just as in Matthew, a child may have an angel. God works through means. So each church may have an angel. Now, we don't want to say too much. We don't want to build too much on this, but we also don't want to say too little. Why should this be strange to us? In our materialistic world where we're afraid of anything spiritual, it has to be nailed down in terms of stuff you can smell and touch and hear and see. This does remind us that there are things going beyond this realm of touch and see and feel that we don't need to be embarrassed by. Now, it does not give us the right to pray to angels or construct whole complex angelologies, but there's enough there for us to acknowledge in God's creation. There's an ongoing spiritual reality we aren't completely privy to. That's the first chapter. Let me close with two points of application. Let's look at the picture of Jesus and the priority of Jesus. The picture of Jesus, the priority of Jesus. The extended description of Jesus in verses 13 to 16 is unmistakable. On the one hand, he's our great high priest whose blood frees us from our sins and his life is characterized by perfect purity. On the other hand, his eyes are blazing like fire, seeing all things. Nothing escapes his scrutiny. And out of his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword issuing judgments that cannot be argued. He's both loving and fearsome. Do you see him that way? John's response was to fall down as though dead. He's both loving and fearsome. Do you see him that way? One of the best things about the Chronicles of Narnia is how Lewis portrays Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure. He's not one-dimensional. The children know that he's loving, but they also know he's fearsome at the same time. Lewis writes, the children wanted to bury their heads in his mane and feel his breath, and yet they went trembling at the sight of him. At one point, Lewis describes Aslan's paw touching the children. He describes it. And though it was velveted, it was very heavy. Jesus is like this. In some ways, soft and velveted. In other ways, heavy and sharp. Sharp. David Murrow wrote a book several years ago called Why Men Hate Going to Church, and he gives a pop quiz saying um, which set of values best characterize Jesus Christ and his true followers, and he has two lists on the page, two lists of words, descriptions, which characteristics, which list best characterizes Jesus and his followers. On the left side of the page, he's got 14 words and phrases, competence, power, efficiency, achievement, skills, technology, goal-oriented, self-sufficiency, things like that. On the right side, he's got descriptions of love and beauty and help and nurturing, feeling, sharing. And he writes, over the years, I've shown these lists to hundreds of people, men and women, Christians and non-Christians. More than 95% of the time, people choose the right set. Love, beauty, nurturing, feelings, sharing. Moreau goes on to explain that he got these two lists of words from another book called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. The left list were typical masculine traits, according to the book, and the the right side were typical female traits. And Merle's point is to to say that we tend to think of Jesus in more feminine virtues. Now, when you take these two lists and you compare them to the scriptures of Jesus and his followers in the scriptures, there is more balance between the two lists than we typically associate, or at least than than the survey would indicate. The question that Moral raises is a valid one. Do we have a one dimensional Jesus? That is, he's either all soft or he's all hard. Do we rather see him in his humanity and his divinity? Do we see him in his suffering and his glory, his forgiveness and his wrath? Do we experience intimacy with Jesus, a relationship with Jesus? And do we hail him as the all-conquering supreme ruler? Have we made Jesus into a tame lion? He is both velveted and heavy, Does your picture of Jesus match that? What difference does it make? Well, listen, if we're comfortable in our sin, if we're comfortable in ignoring the word of God, if we're comfortable holding on to beliefs that don't square with scripture, Jesus as the lion is there to disturb us. A sharp double-edged sword protrudes from his mouth. His word about the world and your life will be the decisive word. Do you care what he thinks? On the other hand, if we're overwhelmed by the chaos of our world, the unsettledness of life, Jesus is the lamb. There to comfort and encourage. And he invites us to come to him and find rest. He's both velveted and heavy. Does your picture of Jesus match that? And second, the priority of Jesus. Chapter one is an introduction to the whole book. There are words, phrases, ideas, themes that recur throughout the book that are picked up from the first chapter. And one of the several recurring themes are the titles of God. The titles of God are strikingly prevalent in this chapter. God is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's the Alpha the Omega, the first and the last, the Almighty. And then Jesus picks up some of that, too. He's the first and the last, and he's making a statement. By saying he's the first and the last, he's saying there's no one before him. No thing and no one precede him. He's first. Everything starts with him. Here's the question, the applicational question. It's very basic. Is Jesus your Alpha? Is he your Alpha? Does your life start with him? Do you start your day with him? Did you start today with him? In prayer, in scripture, Worship? Is Jesus your alpha in your daily routines? What problems are you facing currently? What problems are you facing? Have you, did you start your problem solving with Jesus? Talking to him about your problems. Did you treat Jesus as your alpha by seeking his opinion about your problems? Do you start your budget with Jesus? Do you make him the alpha of your budget? Do you start your weekly schedule with Jesus? Jesus goes in the calendar first and then other things. Is he your alpha? The disorder we've seen unfold around us this year, when you think about it, do you start with Jesus? Jesus, what are you up to? Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, help me trust you. Jesus, help me to see things that I don't currently see. Jesus, give me a glimpse of heaven. Jesus, Jesus, did you start with him? Is he your alpha? This is what it means to live victoriously. Notice he's not just the alpha, he's the omega. Everything's for him. Everything is moving towards him. The universe is fit for Jesus. The universe is built for Jesus. Jesus built the universe for himself. One pastor tells a story of there was a family in his church. Everybody in the family was tall. The mom, the 14-year-old daughter, where everybody was at least six feet tall. 14-year-old daughter, six feet tall. And they built a house. A custom house. Built for them. Now, for someone like me walking into that house, that would be very interesting. All the cupboards are very high up, all the shelves. But for sub six foot people, I think you'd probably walk in there, you'd say, uh This universe was not built for me. I don't belong in this universe. This is not for me. It's clearly not for me. Jesus built the universe for himself. Custom built for himself. You were built for him. You fit when you're serving him. Everything is oriented towards him. All of history is rushing headlong into his lap. He's the omega point. Everything is for him. Everything created has been created for him. Is he your alpha and omega? Does your life need reorienting to account for the priority of Jesus? I implore you not to put this off. This text does say Jesus is coming again with the clouds and every eye will see him and there will be people who mourn and wail because by then it will be too late to reorient their lives back to the priority of Jesus. If Jesus has not been your Alpha and Omega, don't delay. Do that today. Let's pray. Father, inspire us with a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. May his spectacular glory and brilliance rest our attention away from the banality of this world. I pray you'd help us hold together this picture of Christ as both friend of sinners and all-conquering supreme ruler. He encourages those who are discouraged. He rebukes those who are haughty. Fill our imaginations with this Jesus who's both velveted and heavy. Lord, I pray for those listening who might need their lives reoriented back to Jesus as Alpha and Omega. Would you do that? Would you give them a glimpse of the glory of your Son that makes the things of this world grow strangely dim? We ask these things for the sake of your people, the church, and your glory. Amen.